Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Today, we're very lucky to have Bloomberg Markets Managing Editor Joe Weisenthal on the podcast. It's fantastic to get to talk to him. He has been in the heart of markets coverage and the evolving landscape of financial media for years now um, and in, is an integral part of that scene. Um, he's a he's a friend of mine and, and someone that's been very helpful in sort of my career as well, I think it's fair to say. And it's great to get to talk to him. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, George. Uh, I'm very excited to come on. And yeah, obviously, we've been sort of interacting on the internet for several years now and gotten to become a friend, met you in person, had you uh, on my show. And um, I'm very excited to uh, be on your podcast. Yeah, it's fun. We we kind of get to talk about some subjects with you that I think um, some other folks that we've talked to have been less uh, sort of focused on. So um, Joe obviously is very uh, deeply a part of the financial media as opposed to um, sort of the group of strategists, economists, or risk takers um, that, that sort of get a lot more market attention. But I, I think that um, the media angle is almost more interesting given how behavioral markets have been these um, in, in recent years. So I, I think that'll be fun to talk about. Before we dive into all that, would love to just sort of recap your your background, Joe. So yeah. you graduated from the University of Texas at Austin, correct? Yeah, I, uh, I went to college at University of Texas uh, in Austin. I graduated in 2002. I studied, uh, I was really interested in politics and international relations, so I studied what they called government uh, there, but I really didn't have any clear idea what I wanted to do or anything like that. Um, I just sort of hung around Austin after I graduated. I worked in a deli making tofu sandwiches at a hippie grocery store, Um, and I wrote music and musicals and stuff like that, and I rode my bike around and played a lot of chess, sort of like the... uh, classic Austin, Texas, bumming around slacker lifestyle for a couple years. Austin is a great place for that lifestyle, by the way. I mean, it's such a fun, laid back place. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really great. Like I always tell the story because I didn't have any money or anything after college and my friends would invite me downtown to like go to some bar and I'd look at my wallet and I'd have a $5 bill and I'd be like, sweet, I can go out for the night because <laughs> that was good for like two beers at $2 each and a tip. So uh, that was like set me up for the night. And it really was uh, is a, not a bad lifestyle. Yeah. it's it. When you spend too much time in New York City, you kind of tend to forget that places like Austin or, or other parts of the country, it's just, you know, a lot more affordable to, to do everything. Pretty much anywhere else in the world or in certainly the United States looks dramatically more affordable uh, when you get out of New York. Uh, but speaking of New York, yeah. So anyhow, you were around Austin, and then uh, what happened next to sort of get you into the media from your post-undergraduate? Yeah, so it's it a few more steps, but uh, in 2004, a good friend of mine from when I was uh, much younger 
Uh, his family, I had always been interested in financial markets as well, having gone to high school and early college during the bubble years. And so that sort of peaked. And you traded stocks in, in the internet bubble too, right? Yeah, I did. And uh, it was one of those times where I, I was, uh, you know, everyone was a genius in the late 90s. You really couldn't lose money. And so everyone thought they were like, thought they were really smart and knew what they were doing. And uh, from 98 to 2000, I traded stocks and I started with $2,000 from a summer job. And I think I, you know, grew it tenfold or so, but that really isn't saying very much at that time. That just means you basically went long some internet stocks. But the what I got really lucky because I studied abroad in, um, in the first semester, uh, um, in the spring of 2000. And so before I left, I sold a bunch of stuff because I knew I wasn't going to be able to trade. And so that uh, was the peak of the bubble and then everything started crashing. So I actually ended up keeping a lot of what I made uh, just purely by accident uh, because of having studied abroad at that time. So I'm sure I, I would have ridden it all the way back down to zero. I just got a little lucky though. So uh, I was able to uh, pay for a few semesters of college with that. The best risk managers are extremely lucky individuals. I think it's fair to say. I mean, you gotta you gotta use that to your advantage. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, so, so you traded some internet stocks while you were in college. You, you know, were yeah. serving tofu sandwiches and playing. I would assume country because you like country music in Austin and yeah. and going out for a couple beers every weekend. And, um, <laughs> you know, but but when I came to know you, you were you were sort of running. Business Insider, effectively, um, and you know, then moved on to Bloomberg um, yeah. in the mid 2010. So, um, how did what was sort of the the gap between those? Sure. Things? So in 2004, I moved to New York City. Uh, a good friend of mine from high school, his family had a very small um, portfolio management company, and uh, I had interned there one summer, and they were opening up a little office in New York City, and I sort of. Uh, Beg my beg for a job. I was I was ready to get out of Austin. I was like, okay, I'm getting a little depressed, a little bored, and so uh, they gave me a job, essentially doing equity research, just looking into companies that they were thinking about investing in, sort of uh, helping build out spreadsheets, stuff like that. And so that was sort of my ticket to leave Austin and have a job when I came to New York. That was uh, spring 2004. And it basically that job basically lasted a year because what happened was they moved um, uh, after a year. They realized they didn't really need an office in New York. And I didn't really feel like moving with them because my then girlfriend and now wife was moving up to uh, New York in 2005. So I didn't stay with the company and I didn't have a job and I was doing some temp work in New York. I was like uh, through a temp agency, literally. And then uh, at that around the same time, I started a blog with a friend of mine called thestalwart.com, which is uh, my Twitter handles, The Stalwart. And uh, we started this blog about basically as a way for us to keep track of market things while we weren't doing it day to day because we were still interested in markets and economics, even though I wasn't really in the field in any meaningful sense. But I wanted to just sort of uh, – keep as a as a personal project to keep track of what was going on and through that that was sort of the early days of the uh, blog revolution or at least we thought it was a revolution then uh started and through that i eventually got uh real 
writing jobs. And we can sort of skip ahead some stuff. But in 2008, I started working for Business Insider. Um, I met Henry Blodgett at a party. Uh, interestingly enough, it was at a uh, party, I believe, that was thrown by then Mayor Bloomberg, for, uh, who uh, I'm at Bloomberg now. So, you know, small world. Uh, <laughs> I met him at a party and uh, I joined Business Insider when there were about six people in the newsroom. I think at that time we were in one tiny office that's that was about as big as this uh, recording studio that I'm in right now. And I was there from 2008, uh, October 2008, through October 2014. And so in that that six years, it became one of the biggest business sites in the world. The newsroom was over 100 people. It had an office in London by that time. And I was kind of by that point, I was like, all right, this feels like uh, we've accomplished something. And I was then open to new uh, new opportunities, and right then uh, Bloomberg came along, and uh, I uh, came here because uh, opportunity to do digital stuff at a new place, plus co-host a TV show. I figured that was probably a once in a lifetime opportunity, and um, now I'm here. So that was kind of the sped up version. The thing I love about that story is the fact that the stalwart.com and I'd, I'd love to hear the origin story for that name by the yeah. way but the stalwart.com came out of sort of organic interest really like it wasn't it wasn't yeah. like you were out there trying to be like oh well if i have a blog i'll get like a writing job somewhere and then i can be in the, like the financial no. media no it wasn't at all it wasn't at all it was it was very much like a project that um my co-writer at the time who's now is sort of a big uh, investor and business guy in singapore but he and i um, just wanted a place to keep track of our thoughts, essentially, and write down what we were seeing in the economy and markets. And both of us were sort of interested in this new world of media, but there was no plan. It was not like, oh, this is going to be what I do to get a writing job. Or it was no like, we were, neither of us were thinking of it as this is going to be some big media property. It was just, it was just a project of love, so to speak. And we came up with the name because uh, it was of no meaning to us. The word had no significance. We were thinking of names, and all the names seemed sort of cliche. We were like market something or something wire or something line. It's just like we were just thinking of a bunch of cliche market-sounding names. And then we were like, what if we named it something that just seemed timeless and like the name of an old newspaper, something that did not feel modern but ancient? And we were, and somehow the name uh, – the stalwart came it sounded like it could be the name of an old british magazine or a ship or a newspaper or something and we're like that sounds nice it just it has a good feel to it and that was our name your approach to markets is really interesting right and and media now that we sort of talked about your path into the industry into what you're doing now very untraditional and i think the way that you approach markets is also somewhat untraditional so i mean i sort of think of it as almost like like a kamikaze enthusiasm for it like <laughs> like and i say that like entirely complimentarily right like i I, 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 no, I take it as a compliment. Yeah, I, like it's it's fascinating to watch like your Twitter feed around big data um, releases or, you know, when lots of stuff is going on in markets, like it's a willingness to sort of just dive in and start saying stuff and start, you know, um, yeah. start promoting other people's ideas and sort of start 
start disseminating information. And Twitter is the best place to see this, but some of your old posts for BI or even some of the stuff that you do on what did you miss? I mean, it takes this approach of being much more open to non-traditional ideas, you know, having bloggers or, you know, um, yeah. sort of independent analysts on the show, you know, elevating opinions from guys like me who are younger um, or who don't have as much experience right. or ne necessarily the same, you know, brand names beside their name, in addition to, you know, oh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch has raised a price target on X or Goldman thinks right, oil right. is going to do Y. Um, so that sort of approach is really interesting because it's not universal in financial media. Like the blogging thing yeah. has made it easier and there are other people that do it too. But I think you're sort of the poster child for taking less traditional voices and making them really important in the discussion and, and really, you know, worth listening to just by elevating them. So like, can you sort of talk about, about yeah. where that approach comes from? Because I think that's something that a lot of financial media misses, misses out on. I've actually been surprised that we haven't seen more elevation of voices outside of the mainstream in general across financial media. Because, I mean, I'll say, you know, the last several years, sorry, maybe since I've started the blog or 2007, 2008 with Twitter launching, I think there's really two two big stories. One of them, obviously, is the financial crisis and its aftermath, which has just been an extraordinary time for economics and markets. It's a saga, really. I mean, it's it's like an epic. It's like Game of Thrones. It really is. It's an it's an epic saga. It's extraordinary. There's so many things that have happened that people have never seen before in their careers. So many angles on things that people never felt they had to consider before, whether it's, you know, arcana of the banking system or how politics works in Greece. So many new things that have affected markets that people in markets have never really had to think about before. Uh, extraordinary monetary policy, things that we never expected to see central banks have to do. So one, you have new things just uh, all the time, new uh, new stories, new themes, new actors to pay attention to. And then the other big thing is the rise of new media and the openness that that has caused and the, and the ability for someone that none of us have, has ever heard of yesterday to be a must-listen-to voice tomorrow. And so I think these two things have really intersected in important ways. The uh, the novelness, so to speak, of the stories and the opportunity to find new experts on things. So I think that financial media today, it, there, it can't just be reliant on the old networks of finding uh, expertise, whether it's from the banks, whether it's the sell-side strategists, many of whom I like, and there are a lot of sell-side strategists who are economists or analysts who I who I who I really like to listen to, but I think that the defining aspect of this era is people outside of those traditional uh, channels, who we can all, who we can find thanks to uh, social media, thanks to Twitter and so forth, and we can say, ah, this person they know it. Maybe they're a professor at some university. Maybe they manage money, but it's something about in a different country. Whatever it is, we can uh, figure it out very fast. This is the uh, Axon uh, subject, and we should start getting to work elevating this voice. And I think that's my favorite thing. I love nothing more than to find a new voice and then immediately not waste any time and try to you know, have them on the show, 
promote them, tweet their stuff, whatever. Uh, it's just a sort of perfect storm for all that right now. And I think uh, embracing that is the only thing that makes any sense. It's also really interesting, too, because I think that the rest of the media and the rest of sort of current events as a space, and that's like obviously a very broad way to think about the world, whether it's politics, geopolitics, international relations, um, anything to do with the economy, with sociology, with and there's just this massive space, right? Right. A lot of stuff that probably should have happened closer to the crisis is sort of happening now. And you're sort of having to go further and further afield to get explanations that work for all this stuff. So it's almost like non-financial media has caught up a bit to financial media in that desire to um, seek out non-traditional voices ac across the spectrum. Um, but interestingly, I, you know, a coda to that would be that the, the financial media doesn't have a huge problem with fake news. I mean, right. you see some mm -hmm. people come on occasionally um, on TV or into your Twitter feed or, you know, quoted in a uh, paper that really obviously don't know what they're talking right. about and are spreading a straight up falsehood. I mean, there are people like that out there, right. but there's not many of them. No. It's not dominant in the conversation despite as as you point out the value of bringing all these new and untested yeah, right. voices in so so it, I'm curious what you th why you think this is a problem for you know mass current events and that's now following the same path that the finance news complex has followed but wasn't for that finance news complex well I think the uh, I it's funny I was actually recently talking to a class at NYU and they were asking me uh, similar stuff about fake news and why we haven't seen that as much in financial media. I mean, as you say, there are charlatans, there are liars. I think one of the one of the big differences and advantages that finance still has is there are these you know, certain objective facts that are undisputable. There are markets that have essentially or monopolies on pricing. We can what's the price of X? We can just go look at the price of X. And so there are these certain authoritative centralized locations that reduce some potential for ambiguity. You want to know the price of gold? Well, there are certain uh, respected outlets for the price of gold. We don't. It's different than in politics where, you know, even polls can have wildly different assumptions and stuff like that. There's not sort of a single database of truth. There's also you can't lie legally in many areas of financial uh, in the financial world companies aren't allowed to just lie about how they're doing, whereas politicians can just straight up lie and there's not really any sort of automatic um, automatic punishment for that. Um, so there are certain structural differences between financial news and, say, politics news that I think keep it inherently a little more honest, that just make it harder to full cloth uh, – make up stuff. But in general, you know, I think you're you're very much right. In a way, politics is going through what finance went through starting eight years ago, which is the um, the events uh, that people had never seen before, that they had never expected to see, and outcomes that were just seemed uh, completely implausible. And I think we are seeing a sort of big collapse in the credibility of the sort of mainstream political analysts and the mainstream political pundits, uh, mainstream outlets, and uh, sort of an urgency to get in some new voices across the spectrum who can actually help make uh, make sense of what's going on. So it does feel like this sort of 
thing, you know, these sort of cataclysm. I don't want to say cataclysmic per se when it comes to politics, but things that were very unexpected that broke the rules and broke the norms uh, are happening much in the same way that uh, finance did a while back. And I think that's causing a lot of uh, anxiety among traditional areas of the media. I guess the, the one positive takeaway we could take from that observation, right, is that even though the finance industry had to deal with massive unprecedented events and change in a very short scope of time and a lot of bad stuff happened, yeah. in the longer run, you know, the world hasn't ended. Right. right. The world has continued. There is still a finance industry. There are still markets. I mean, heck, U.S. equity markets are at all time highs. Yeah. You know, there's all sorts of good stuff going on. Um, you know, the economy is doing fine, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the, the takeaway would be that even though we have this sort of what looks like really bad stuff going on in politics, similar to what happened in finance eight years ago, in finance, that hasn't been the end of the world. So maybe we should think yeah. a little bit more optimistically about what's happening. I think that's re that's that's really important. And one of the things that I came, one of the conclusions I came to watching the last several years in finance, is that just because at any given moment we can't see what the solution is going to be or how we're ever going to get out of this mess, uh, there were points in 2011 looking at the eurozone where it seemed, for example, impossible to imagine how the Eurozone crisis could end because we had some idea of what the solution, what solutions would take, but we also knew the impediments and those seemed like ironclad uh, impediments that would prevent any solution from taking place. But the lesson is just because we can't see a positive outcome from here does not mean that a positive outcome doesn't exist. Um, and I think that's a really tough thing to grasp. And in markets, it's also true that if you wait until it's clear what the positive outcome is or what the solution is, then it's probably too late. I mean, you think going back to 2009, I just remember seeing all kinds of charts showing the, the foreclosure wave that was just at the beginning and all the debt that was still out there that was going to destroy us and just you know, all the bad loans that were still on books and just a countless parade of charts that uh, would scare anyone about the economy. And those were all scary and those were all re real issues. And if you're an investor or a homeowner or whatever, none of those were false things per se. But if you had waited until those had resolved before you yourself turned positive or before you yourself started to believe that there could be a positive ending to some of these things, it would have been wildly too late and you would have missed the whole thing. So there, it's very difficult to say when we're at the lowest level, when it's when it can't get any worse from here, when we're going to turn around. But if you wait until you have the answer, until it's become clear, at least in markets, it's uh, far too late. It's almost like a paradox where to get the big gains, you have to make assumptions on such low information content that you can't possibly be sure. It's like markets reward people who who are taking excessive risk in the sense of they're operating on gut. They're, they're Drakenmiller or Soros as opposed to El Arian, I guess would be the, the sort of analogy you would make there, right? They're, they're using instinct um, as opposed to doing this sort of staid analytical approach to things. Um, you know, that that's almost like a paradox because we sort of think of markets as, you know, very good predictors of the future, but to be good, you know, when markets are best to predict in the future, when those inflection points happen, markets 
almost definitionally must be operating on collective gut instinct, which is kind of scary to think about, right? It's almost like a paradox. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's I I never quite thought of it that way as a paradox, but I think you're right because you know thinking back to the really bad times of 2009, I don't think there was anything obvious in the pricing or in the information that we had that would have told you this was the start of a massive bull market. The only thing that you could have really known and it would have taken real instinct and maybe a sense of history is that people were fearful that the world was coming to an end and that it's a reasonable bet that the world is not going to end. And if that had been your only sort of assumption, then that was all you needed to make a lot of money. And so I think that the people who do really well in those periods are not necessarily the people who are really good at analyzing what the information means, but just good at analyzing other people and trying to figure out what other people are thinking about. And at those at that point, uh, you know, it it was like other periods in which people thought everything was coming to an end. And it's a reasonable bet that things won't end. Uh, but yeah, I think I, I like the way you characterize that as a paradox because we think of markets as being the ultimate machines for digesting and putting a price on the existing information that's out there. And rationality too, if not if not necessarily efficiency, then being rational. And rationality, right, and um, discounting future events. But the people who do the best are the people who just sort of essentially – I would say, at least at times like that, look at the market itself, not look at the outside factors and try to price them, but just look at the machine itself and recognize that it's at some extreme. The interesting thread that I would take out of that last set of observations you made is that you know it's it's analyzing people as opposed to analyzing information or or abstract market inputs. Um, do, do you think the current financial media landscape gives people enough uh, insight or an accurate insight into what what those people who have those positions in markets are actually doing? Or do you think there's something of a disconnect between what's going on in financial media and what people are actually thinking? And the, the classic example of that disconnect I would give you would be the uh, disconnect uh, around the election this year. Maybe Brexit would be another example um, where the tone in the sort of collective discourse was very different from the tone at the ballot box um, in a lot of specific places. Um, do you do you think the media, had, with regards to finance, has that disconnect, or do you think that it does a better job in capturing what people in the industry actually are thinking and saying? Uh, that's a really good question, and there's a lot to unpack there, particularly with the media this year and some of the big political events that we've had um, you know, with Brexit and with the U.S. election and how the media – I mean – it's hard. It's 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 really. I I don't know. This is I, I this is a really tough question of like what more information the media should have brought in. I mean, you know, there's this criticism. Well, I I would I wouldn't necessarily say that. Like, I I don't mean this as a as a necessarily an outright no, no, criticism no, no. of sure. of media. I'm I'm more saying you know relative to peers elsewhere in in the media right. world. Do you think financial media does a better or worse job in in sort of representing what's actually going on at the people level in the industry? Maybe that framing helps a little bit more. You say the people level in the industry. So do you mean the people level in the financial world? 
Yeah, exactly. So, for instance, like, you know, when when the market is really off sides, do you think you can yeah. see that looking at the media? When Because you couldn't see that looking at the media um, with regards to the election. That's like sort of the analogy, right? Like when we were headed into the election, the, the market didn't or the media did not reflect um, an electoral college victory for, for Trump. No. Um, you know, there's just no debating that. Do you think that the financial media represents that that dynamic better or or worse than traditional media in other areas? I doubt it's any better. And I, I think the reason is, and this goes for myself and mo I think most people, it's genuinely hard to have a thought and to have an idea that's out of consensus in, in some meaningful way. Like I, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election and I knew that there was that it was close and I knew that there were a lot of people who were uh, against her and that, you know, you see all these anecdotes about all the passion on the side of Trump. And I was like, look, I, I ultimately I have to sort of just go with the tools that have traditionally worked, polling, models, stuff like that. And I thought roughly the consensus was probably right that she was going to win and that she was probably the candidate who would be sort of the better one for the markets and that if Trump won, that would probably be negative for markets because all the evidence seemed to point in that direction. And there was nothing obvious to me that stood out as being um, wrong with any of those stories. I think probably uh, the media could do a better job of questioning those stories or at least holding the views softer and sort of trying to pick apart where they're weak. But in the end, I think that the fin finance media is probably very not very different from, say, traditional politics media in approaching big stories from uh, a novel frame. I think we all fall victim to roughly the same biases or this, and believing that and we glom around certain assumptions. Um and I don't really know what the solution to that either is because I think you know it's kind of a kind of a human nature thing. Yeah, and I, to be fair, it's not like this is something that is uh, unique to the media. You know that sort of that sort of inability to see the outcome that nobody else can. And I mean, the other thing is too that so much of the analysis that was done um, leading up to uh, the election this year that predicted a Trump victory was either factually on dubious ground or would never have worked in a previous situation. So, yeah. you know, it, it, whereas with the housing crisis, I mean, there were people uh, that that being another black swan event, uh, the Eurozone yeah. crisis would be another one from the mid 2000 or from the late 2010s. Um, you know, there's there's been a, a number of them where there were a number of people who said, look, here's a framework that's worked in the past. And, and this shows that something very clearly is going wrong here. Yeah. Um, you know, or something some very strange outcome is about to take place. Um, whereas this time it didn't I, I didn't see any analysis like that. Right. So it, it's and, and markets markets have this problem, too. A lot of the people who predicted that Trump was going to win and, you know, they, they got it right, so I'm not going to criticize them at all. Much of it struck me as anecdotal, not based on rigorous data, a lot of gut feelings, a lot of saying, oh, look at those crowds, look at the lawn signs and stuff like that, which is great. They got it right, so hats off to them. But 
usually that stuff doesn't seem to work. Usually that's the argument and the line that the fools make, and then they get embarrassed when the polls turn out to be correct. And interestingly, interestingly, you know, the the gut feel thing, right? That sounds a lot like a big turning point we're talking about in markets, right? Like yeah. we discussed earlier, where the people yeah. that make the biggest returns aren't doing it based on actual analysis, right? It's based purely on gut feel, right. purely on something that that is not a high certainty. I like uh, Matt Levine uh, of Bloomberg View recently tweeted. He thought that um, so and so calling Trump's victory would be the is going to be the the new called the financial crisis. Exactly. It's like that. So people are going to be the people who called Trump's victory in twenty years from now are going to be brought on TV as the person who called Donald Trump's victory, and they're going to be able to dine out on that for the rest of their life. Yeah, and, and we then sort of have to bestow on them this this like, oh, well, they got it right that one time, so so what do we what do we think? You know, and the same thing for Brexit and the same thing for and I guess that's sort of a frustrating thing is someone that, you know, our our firm tries to do everything we can rooted in data. And there's a certain point where you have to sort of let data go and, and look at some other stuff. But it's frustrating to live in a world where, you know, every turn this year, data hasn't mattered. Like the data doesn't matter. The Data, the input doesn't matter. I don't care what your process is. Like it's just been wrong. That that I'm I'm I, I'm not afraid to say it. That's been a personally frustrating thing to see go on in a number of different realms too. And and this is not limited to politics. Um, Brexit, Trump, uh, stuff like breakouts not working earlier in the year. Like there were a number of asset classes that just like they couldn't get to work or break you know buying breakouts selling breakdowns or um you know the oil market or the us dollar i mean there's just been a number of different assets that, that haven't done what they've been expected to do at certain times and it's been really i mean it, i i'll say it's funny but also very frustrating sitting as someone that tries to be analytical and data driven trying to live in that world well i i've often uh, i've joked a couple of times that the cruelest thing you could have done to someone this year would be to have told them in advance the result of the uh, Brexit vote in the U.S. election, because they almost certainly would have gone entirely to cash uh, before all of that, just and sort of waited it out and missed a fantastic year uh, in the stock market, or bought a ton of bonds, right? <laughs> it, right, but so not only would the data not have helped you uh, sort of anticipate the election. Having known the results, you probably would have, one probably would have made some terrible decisions if you had known them in advance. And so it's just a which makes the year sort of uh, exceptionally cruel. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a fascinating learning experience. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't think anyone who actually likes markets and, and again, yeah, back yeah. to how you got into the industry, you're clearly a guy that would be probably doing something similar to what you do, even if you weren't getting paid for it. That's kind of how I think of what I do, right, is right. I, I would probably be looking at economic data every morning as soon as I woke up, whether I was getting paid for it or not, because it's that interesting to me. Um, I think you're the same way. And I think a lot of a lot of totally. the best markets people out there tend tend to be that way. But, you know, so with that attitude, it's hard to say, oh, well, this was this has been a terrible year. I mean, sure there's been a there's been terrible stuff that's gone on but it's been fascinating it's been an amazing learning experience yeah. because now you know i know what it looks like for something to go so pear-shaped in the face of every guess the other way every every input the other way no i mean i, I agree i think this is a really extraordinary year um you know fortunately we haven't had anything that there have been no real big financial meltdowns. Economies in most uh, places seem to be doing well. People are getting jobs. So 
that makes me happy. But in a sense, it reminds me of 2011 again, where you just started this sort of very interesting intersection between politics. In that case, it was the Eurozone, but political events and financial market events really finding that intersection where just extraordinary things happen that are very hard to anticipate, very hard to model, very hard to figure out how they resolve themselves. And 2016 is going to be an extraordinary year for historians. We're getting to see the sort of reemergence of certain dynamics and forces and pressures in society that seemed to have been dormant for a while. And following the news this year has just been incredible. So what do you think the three most undercovered stories have been? Like stuff that's gotten attention, but but maybe not enough attention uh, in, in the historical context or in the long-term context. What are three things we're going to look back and say like, wow, how did that not get attention? So here here's one that I'll say. And this is going to at first sound completely ridiculous, but I, whatever. As weird as it is to say, I think we're actually not talking about social media enough. <laughs> and I, I, you know, we talk about social media constantly. We're on social media. We talk about Twitter. We talk about um, uh, the impact of Facebook and fake news and filter bubbles and all kinds of. Uh, phenomena and that are associated with social media and the impact, the effect on uh, traditional media, etc. And yet, for all we talk about it, I think the ramifications of social media are probably, in retrospect, going to uh, appear to historians to be much bigger than we are now. I've been, I've been doing, or much bigger than we realize now. This year, I've been doing a lot of reading this year about sort of the history of media and the history of nationhood and the concept of nationhood and nation statehood and the you know nation states have always sort of were sprung forth from a print era of newspapers and novels where the, the media had the effect of creating the concept of national identity and um the concept that we're all kind of neighbors with each other, even though we've never met each other, because we all read the same stuff and we all read the same, uh, in, take in the same information and tell each other the same myths and the same stories and stuff like that. And the degree to which social media uh, slices each other, slices, creates new groupings in some cases that are international groupings, uh, the way it feeds us different different uh, sets of data that we don't necessarily agree with each other or don't get the same ones as our neighbor, I think is going to have really profound political ramifications well beyond this one election that are going to put real stresses on the institutions. Some, so, some of it being very good. I think many of our institutions are outdated and deserve to be stressed and ripped up and started anew. What's an example of an institution that deserves to be stressed and ripped up and started anew? Well, our criminal justice system, for example, yeah, it probably is one that I think needs to be ripped up and completely rethought. And I think uh, social media has already seen we're putting w totally warranted strains on how we conduct uh, criminal justice in the year 2016 is one example. So some of it's going to be very positive and time to 
the things need to be modernized. Some of some things like how we conduct elections and so forth. I don't know if we really need change, but there's going to be they're they're under stress as well. And I think that uh, we'll look back and say that social media had a bigger impact on society than we even uh, realize currently. So that would that's my first uh, undercovered one. Do you have any other that jumped to the front? Of your, I mean, we spent a fair bit of time on that, so I don't want to yeah. make you spend this entire podcast talking about undercovered news. But is, is there anything else that sort of jumped off the page to you as undercovered? No, that's kind of the big one. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Like, I mean, I've. Uh, if you don't have another one, Joe, we can move right on. It's not a big all right, deal. Let's move on. <laughs> if if I right. think of something else, I'll just jump in at some point during our conversation. Perfect. If something else jumps to my head. Um. So one one concept I think that would be interesting to get your take on that has sort of developed um, that that I've come across recently is this concept of hypernormalization. So there's a British film, filmmaker named Adam Curtis who titled a recent documentary um, after this, and um, you know it was originally developed in 2006. Um, by this guy named Alexei Yurchak. Um, and, and the idea is that uh, society has become so complex that nobody's mental model for society works. No one can create a mental model mm. that sort of encompasses society and all its diversity and all its strangeness. Um, and so to, to handle that, people have mental models that are insufficient for explaining everything. And they just sort of ram random events into those mental models. And, oh, okay, this works now. An example for this might be, um, for instance, uh, the Democrats uh, after the election being extremely enthusiastic about what the CIA had to say. Right. Another example might be uh, swinging public opinion with regards to Putin from Republican right. voters, right? Like these are things that don't make rational sense, but they're crammed into these mental models um, that sort of have to be stressed. And, and, and the result is this sort of nothing makes sense anymore. I think this is like a really interesting way to think about the world, especially in the context of media and current events, um, because it, it sort of rings really true, right? Like we all have our little our little Facebook or Twitter um, or, you know, whatever media or social media outlet bubbles that we sit in. And we're trying to cram these events and these tribal impulses into them. And it just right. doesn't work sometimes, right? Like there's stuff where we just either we're wrong and have to admit we're wrong or up and down are no longer up and down anymore. I think, I mean, I think this is a real, I hadn't heard that term hyper normalization, but this phenomenon that you described certainly rings very true to me. And I, I think another thing that we're seeing is thanks to the speed of information, social media, the pressure to create a new story from one day to the next is immense. Um, and so you have all of these pundits and analysts and economists who on November 7th had one story and most of them got everything got the election completely wrong and then by November 9th they were they had a completely new story and a completely new explanation for what happened and I'm like guys why don't you take a break take a week off just take a week off and then come back with your story because the speed from which people feel pressured to now have a new explanation for everything that just happened and to explain it all and then to move on is just so intense right now. And it almost loses any semblance of credibility when people who totally didn't see one thing coming now have to nicely packaged their new explanation for what happened. And so 
I think what you say is sort of this desire to pick a few different things in this incredibly complex world and then jam them into some mental model and say, well, this causes X is both a very prevalent thing and for whatever reason, there's a lot of pressure on people to do that. One uh, one book that I read, uh, I think I read it this past summer, that really uh, struck with me is this book called Chain of Title by uh, the uh, David Dion. He's a political writer. Uh, he writes for The New Republic from time to time and I think The Nation and a few other places. And it's a look at um, – the foreclosure crisis in Florida during 2006, 2007, 2008, and beyond. And specifically, uh, a group of activists, none of whom had legal training, but who realized that a lot of uh, corners were being cut uh, in how foreclosures were being done. And, um, and what it really is is a story of hyper uh, how hyper complex society has become because let's say you're trying to fight a foreclosure or you think something's wrong or you're trying to work out a payment plan on your mortgage you really have no hope as an individual in the modern society of going up against a bank that knows the rules inside and out has an army of lawyers the the degree to which the i'm trying to complexization that's not a word the degree to which society has become so complex and certain as things that we can't get away from, such as our home or healthcare or certain things, certain bureaucracies that we have no choice but with which to interact, so tilt the playing field so dramatically to large organizations that know every detail of the law that I think this is, has this has big ramifications on society right now, just this feeling that there's no way for the average person to really grasp the details that they need to master to thrive within uh, within this uh, within this economy, to thrive within the banking system, to thrive within the health insurance system. And I don't think we've totally grappled with uh, the uh, ramifications of that. So this book was very interesting because you just see how totally overwhelmed the average homeowner is, even in situations in which the law may have been on their side with regard to getting kicked out of their home or trying to work something out on their mortgage. Most people just never uh, never stood a chance of actually exercising their rights. Yeah, I think about some recent uh, interactions I've had with the financial system personally, um, you know, the sort of everyday type stuff. So yeah. getting a car loan or um, having to track down a check that was filed in right. the wrong account at a, at a place where I had uh, been renting, you know, like very generic, easy stuff to do, right? Or should be easy stuff to do. And yet, when you sort of think about it intellectually, the the, the complexity and the number of places where, you know, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm reasonably, I'm literate, I, I'm very numerate um, compared to the average person, I would say. And, you know, like, I know how this stuff is supposed to work. And I still found it like really challenging to get some of this basic stuff done. Yeah. And you sort of magnify that across the number of transactions that people have to do you know both with the financial system and with other complex systems that are required for modern life and it, it really becomes daunting especially for somebody who hasn't been taught the coping mechanisms whether it's you know social coping mechanisms whether it's you know uh, having a stable home growing up um, having a good uh, a scholastic education you know when you, when you stop start 
pulling those pillars out, you start really having a hard time. And, you know, I, I think that it applies to a much larger stretch of society than than um, we'd like to admit. Now, the flip side of this, I would say, is yeah. what all that complexity complexity allows you to do, you, you know, you can't just look at that and say, oh, well, that's bad. We should go back to the way it was, because then you have to go back to a world with less um, less education, right. a lower right. standard of living, less healthcare, you know, whatever metrics you want to use. Mm -hmm. And that was clearly bad. Like nobody in the world would pick to be alive in 1900 as the average person versus alive today as the average person. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't create political stresses and, yeah. and desires to make the system work better. Yeah, I agree. I don't think going back is the answer um, or is ideal. But I do think you're absolutely right. I mean, I had to I had similar stuff as with you this year dealing with the financial system and what seemed like should be extremely routine stuff that just sort of normal interactions became very uh, headache-inducing, stressful, occupied much of my mental energy for several days in a row uh, for stuff that should be pretty basic and routine. And so if you think about and uh, in a much more stressful situation, people are losing their jobs, potentially losing their homes when you know the, the pressure is ramped up several fold from what you or I had to deal with this year. Uh, then you can just see how society can sort of the complexity of society could really break some people and really uh, radicalize some people. Yeah, um, it's pretty sobering to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so to turn sort of back towards the intersection of finance and media, when you sort of sit down in the morning, I mean, you're, you're I described it earlier as sort of kamikaze approach. Like yeah. you get into the office at what time? Five thirty, maybe. Is is uh, that right? Yeah, between five and five thirty, typically. That that's early, man. I get up early, well, and that's awful early. <laughs> well, you gotta, you know, one of the big. I've always sort of, I've always liked mornings, and both you and I interact a lot with the Europe crowd on Twitter in the morning. Which is awesome, by the way. It's it's the the Europeans are the best. Which is awesome, and I have to be honest, it's especially important these days to have a few hours before uh, the internet just turns Trump, Trump, Trump all the time. So in the morning, you, know, you see people talk about Brexit, you see people talking about something going on somewhere, and then by 8.30 or 9, you're like, okay, it's all over, now people are just talking about U.S. politics. So it's especially important to have those hours to keep you sane where you rec recognize there are a few other stories going on in the world. And it's frustrating too, I should say it's frustrating. We've talked at least obliquely a little bit about U.S. politics a fair bit on this podcast, but th there's no way to get away from it. It's not like people should never be talking about U.S. politics because it's really important. We're in the midst of a huge string point, but like, it's still like it's all people talk about in a lot of different contexts these days. Yeah, it really is unfortunate because I you we want to get away from it, right? We I, I the world is not exactly screaming out for more people to talk about US politics. But for now it really is the only story and even in markets the level of interest with what kind of policies this administration pursues on a whole range of things, it's kind of the it feels like it's the only game in town really. I mean, I think for ye, I think the Fed in a sense is less relevant right now than it has been at any time since the financial crisis, at least in terms of there being another actor on stage now who could potentially influence things as much. I mean, um, obviously, Obama had a split government, so there was very little that he could do after uh, the 2010 midterms. 
But now we're in a period in which we have a united government that not only can get things done, but we really could, you know, get some quite extraordinary things done for uh, better or for worse. And so the Fed just isn't the story as much as it was. And we all have to pay attention to politics now. Whether it's, it seems like it's unavoidable, sadly. The last thing, Joe, you became a father uh, relatively recently, and uh, you're part of a group of folks, uh, My our, our friends, I should say, uh, Connor Sen or Matt Segan of uh, uh, New River Investments would be in a, another couple of examples. Your former colleague, uh, Jay Yarrow at Business Insider, who is now at CNBC, he, uh, he had a kid relatively recently. Um, how has that changed your how you cover markets, how you think about markets, and how you do your job? You know what's funny? Uh, the biggest change, I don't know how it's – well, it's for. I'm not online as much at night anymore. So I used to uh, – from a very pragmatic standpoint, I used to stay up late to pay attention to Chinese PMI, for example, when the China data came out at night. Now I realize that I can miss it. It's not the end of the world. I can go to bed and see what happened in the morning, and it's not going to be the end of things if I'm a few hours late to seeing what the latest Chinese data is. In general, it's made me slow down because, um, and in a good way. And you sort of realize that we're so, you know we're so used to getting things instantly. We order food online, it arrives almost instantly. We want to read a book or something, we click on an article, we read it. And with a baby. From the history of time and probably forever, a nine-month-old baby is always going to be a nine-month-old baby, and there's no way to speed it up, and there's no way to get a baby with the, <laughs> there's no way to get a baby that's uh, with the physical and cognitive abilities of a two-year-old within six months. It's just never going to happen. Uber, but for child rearing. <laughs> yeah, so it really just slows your perception of time in a very nice way. I actually. I read more. I've probably read more books in 2016 than I have in years because I just don't feel as much in a hurry uh, any, in in many ways because I realize that sort of there are certain aspects of life that can't be hacked and can't be Uberized, as you say. And so when you get that perspective, you just say it gives you a little more relaxation and uh, you just calm down a little bit and don't you don't mind doing things that take a while. Awesome. Okay, so last segment here, trading rich, trading cheap. Yeah. I'm going to throw out a couple different subjects, and you're just going to tell me whether they're trading rich or trading cheap. So right. uh, number one here is trading rich or trading cheap, day trading. Uh, I'm going to say trading rich because I just don't I, – I still have a hard time seeing what the future is there. So trading rich. Okay, I have an, a feeling what, what you're going to say in response to this then. Trading rich or trading cheap, index investing. I actually think it's trading cheap because it's very popular and it's growing like crazy. And yet people are sort of skeptical and they talk about how there's going to be a swing back in the other direction. But I think that the uh, swing towards indexing isn't anywhere close to done. Okay. Uh, trading rich or trading cheap hedge funds? Uh, I would actually say maybe trading cheap right now because people have gotten so negative on them. But the idea of strategies that – fundamentally don't uh, perform in line with the cycle probably uh, will come back into popularity. So active management X hedge funds is trading rich and hedge funds are trading cheap. That's an interesting 
Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's in, my, implicitly, that's my right? Trade. Uh, yeah, long okay. long hedge funds, short mutual funds. <laughs> okay, uh, trading rich or trading cheap, independent digital media. So your business insiders, uh, your Mike.coms, your Huffington Posts, uh, your Breitbart's. Uh, who? That is a really good question. Um, I'm gonna say. <sighs> I'm going to say trading rich, the current crop, but that the idea, but that uh, that doesn't mean that the industry as a whole is rich. I just think, in general, the sort of current ones out there are feeling a little stale right now. Got it. Okay. Finally, trading rich or trading cheap, your your medium of choice, Twitter. Ooh, I'm kind of bearish on Twitter these days, just because. I guess I'm going to say trading a little rich. And why is that a tough one? Um, It just feels it just feels so noisy. It feels so unproductive. It feels like it outside of our little world of finance media that I love. By and large, it just seems more and more annoying every day. (laughs) And so I'm kind of uh, say it's trading rich. Well, finance media or finance Twitter will not get boring for me anytime soon. No, finance Twitter is great. So long finance media short the rest of – long finance Twitter short the rest of Twitter. (laughs) That's great. On that, uh, I think we'll close it off. Joe, thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks so much. Always great to talk to you, George. Really appreciate uh, you having me on. Great. Have a a good uh, holidays, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.